chapter 1. It's towards the end of your Bible, if you're looking for it. It's a really short letter, probably in the Bibles. If you have the loner Bible, it's uh, maybe like one or two pages, okay? So pretty small. If you can't find it, ask the person next to you. Turn to Titus chapter 1, okay? Um, if you weren't with us last week, last week was Easter. Uh, we did this uh, scripture thing. If you missed it uh, and you want to watch it, we actually did video for the first time. You can go and watch that on our uh, Facebook, Vimeo, whatever all that is. But this week we start and we get back into what we usually do here at Redemption Church is open up a Bible and let's just say, Holy Spirit, what do you have for us? And so today, for the first time in a long time, we're only doing four verses, okay? Uh, usually, in the last uh, six months, we've done huge passages. We went through the book of Judges today, just four verses. Next week, four verses. The week after that, I think three verses. And so I'm ecstatic to jump into the Word of God to break it down with you and see what God has for us this morning as we go through the book of Titus and then on throughout the series. So here's where we're at. Jesus is raised from the dead. We just learned that at Easter. Jesus is now alive again after being crucified by the Roman soldiers. He's back to life. He has uh, ascended to heaven. Now he's in heaven, but he has commissioned his people, his church, to go to the world to spread the gospel. And so in Titus, what you have is a growing, booming church across Europe and Asia and North Africa where we see God bringing his gospel to the nations, and he's using his people and his church to do so. What the uh, letter of Titus, what the book of Titus does for us is it allows us for un to understand the cultural myths of the day and the cultural myths of our day. Because as the church exploded on the scene, new teachers and new teachings began to interfere with the truth that was the gospel. Okay, so the gospel was this beautiful, perfect story, and yet false teaching, false teachers came and began to tweak it as they saw fit, oftentimes for their own gain or their misinterpretation or some other reason that we don't know. But what Titus does is it allows for us to understand what was this, what were these cultural myths, and how do then we identify them today and make sure we are adhering to the gospel, okay? So... Back then, and I think for us now, there was this running theme, there was this running idea, this running worldview, this running myth that I would say is this. There was a godlessness masquerading as godliness. Okay, godlessness masquerading as godliness. And so you had a bunch of false teachers and people following these teachers that said, man, no, I'm, I'm with Jesus, I'm with the gospel, that's my thing. And yet when you began to look at their life and their teaching, it was incongruent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this letter serves as this course correction moment to say, this isn't right, guys. Let's come back to the gospel. Let's come back to the truth. I feel this cultural myth exists for us today uh, in equal portion, that there is a godliness or a godlessness masquerading as godliness in our culture. When we live in a country that still 75 to 80% of its people would say that they are Christians. And then we also then see the reality of the way that's lived out in our culture. There seems to be a gap. And I, listen, I'm not judge and jury, and I'm not making the claim or the call that I know everyone's hearts across the 80% of America that calls themselves Christian. But it is a bit suspect when I look at the, the proclamation, I look at scripture, and then I look at the average life of the average 80% in our, in our nation. And there seems to be a difference between this amazing, beautiful, rich calling of the gospel 
and the way that the average 80% seems to live their life. The things they value, the things they chase, the idols that they crave and worship, etc., etc., etc. I think what we've adhered to both in the church and out of the church is something called moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay? Moralistic therapeutic deism. This is a religious worldview that became studied and accepted and brought about in 2005 when a bunch of researchers got together and they studied the church and they studied people's answers to numerous questions and they studied people's lives and said, man, does this, is this congruence with what we see in the Bible? And they came up with five basic tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism and these are them. Number one, God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. No big problem with that one. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Again, not, not too bad. Like God does want us to be good and to be a ble- blessed to be a blessing and all those things. But number three is where it goes a bit off track. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being happy. I hope you're happy. There's nothing wrong with you having a good understanding of your identity and being proud of yourself because you are made in the image of God. This is all good. But when it is the central thing to your life, this becomes a problem. Number four. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. So God, stay at a distance, right? So, so I'll, I'll call on you when I need you. When I need you in my life, when, when things have gone not like I want them, then I will employ my God card. Now, most of us are like, well, I don't do that. I think we do that all the time. I do that all the time. I fall into this. When I live a life that says the only important moments in life are Sunday from 10 to 1130 and Wednesday night when my small group meets for two hours then, and maybe, just maybe, the 30 minutes a day I do Bible study, that's important, and the rest of it's just my life. That is employing moralistic, therapeutic deism to say, God, you're not the Lord of everything. You're the Lord of the moments I give you. That is not Christianity. That is not the Bible. That is not the gospel. Titus is going to course correct us there. Number five is good people go to heaven when they die. And that's just not true. Because a lot of good people are not going to go to heaven. And a ton, I would say 100% of bad people are. There's no one in heaven that's good. There will never be anyone in heaven that's a good person. It doesn't exist. Everyone in heaven is a bad person. When you get there, you were a bad person. But Jesus came in and made you good because he is good. He made you faithful because he is faithful. He made you righteous because he was righteous. On and on and on. And so what we've adopted as a church culture, it seems, across the land, the 80%, I think is this. And I don't think it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, the deism aspect obviously denotes that there is a God involved, deity, deist. But there are probably some of you here, would be my guess, and there's plenty of people outside of these walls who don't ascribe to a belief in any God, right? Atheism, there is no God. Now, I would say to you, 
if you're here or if you want to share this with those of your friends who don't believe in a God at all. They probably exist in a moralistic, therapeutic humanism, right? So simply just replace all the moments of God and insert me or us or self. So I exist and I order the world around me, okay? I watch over my life and the human life around me. I want people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, including to me, as taught by not just scripture or other religions, but by, by my own conscience. I think the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. I think uh, I do not need to be particularly involved. Keep your distance. I'll take care of me. You take care of you. And then good people go to heaven when they die. That's just true, probably across the land. Moralistic, therapeutic humanism. We have become the center. And so I think there's levels to this. There's the gospel of Jesus Christ to be exalted, ascribed to, and lived for. And then there's these other two shams that are just missing the goodness of what God has promised, offers, and wants us to live in as his creation and children. A quote from the study says this, Something, God, is something like a combination of divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. He's somewhere in between a cosmic therapist and a divine butler. Now, uh, this to me, as I thought through this idea, is every marriage of any 90s sitcom you've ever seen. Now, I don't know how many of you and students partake in this, but who remembers the show Married with Children? Yeah, that's what I figured. Okay. Um, so, so me and Todd. All right. Um, Married with Children, man, this is going to be a terrible illustration then. Essentially, there's this husband. He's a terrible husband. He treats his wife the way that we treat God. Saying, Peg, her name was Peg. Great name. Anyone here named Peg? Good. Um, Peg, get me this, right? He sits on the couch. He comes home from his job, sits on the couch, turns on the TV, and then just calls out to his wife when he wants food, when he wants sex, when he wants whatever he wants. This is the way we we treat God. And I don't even think I'm being dramatic. Like, I think this is the way we treat God. I think I often will slip into this where I treat God this way, where God, man, let me do my thing. I, I know how to run my life. And then when I don't, just for a moment, then I'm like, all right, God, come on over. Get me what I need. Okay. The book of Titus will, course, correct us if we allow it. Okay. The book of Titus will, course, correct us if we allow it. Okay. Another quote from this, and I thought this is going to be the rally cry, I think, for the entire book of Titus for our church moving forward. And it's this. It says, the problem does not seem to be that churches are teaching people badly but that we are doing an exceedingly good job of teaching what we really believe, namely that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires little and the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people. If churches practice moralistic therapeutic deism in the name of Christianity, then getting people to church more often is not the solution. Conceivably, it could make things worse. A more faithful church is the solution. A more faithful church is a solution. And so my hope for us over the next 
I think it's like eight or nine weeks as we go through the book of Titus, is that we at Redemption Flagstaff, and as we seek to love our friends and neighbors and other churches in our city, that the church in Flagstaff would be a more faithful church to God and gospel. That we'd be more faithful to its call, faithful to its promises, faithful to its realities. And so hopefully we get there. We'll see. Now a few things on this letter. Other than serving as a course correction, I think it's to remind us to always have a missional perspective. Because Paul is going to write to the church, and and this church in Crete has just been started. It's going. The mission is supposed to be moving forward. And so Paul is trying to course correct for the sake of the mission of God in the new, uh, across Europe and Asia. When we begin to lose a missional perspective, when we begin to lose the fact that the church has been called on mission, that you just don't get saved and get to just stop, That you're not just saved from things, you're saved to things. You're saved to mission. That when we forget this, that's when we begin to stray. That's that's when we begin to kind of go our own direction. We begin to make our own decisions. And then we get frustrated when people try and call us back. When people try and course correct us, we get mad. Because we've lost the goal. We've lost the mission. I imagine most of us have GPS if you have a smartphone or if you still have the enormous computer that you put on your dashboard, right? Um, If you have that, right, and you're going, you set your destination, and then the moment that you take a wrong turn or you don't follow, what does it do? Rerouting, right? Rerouting, rerouting, because you keep missing the turn. That is course correction, If you, knowing where you want to go, and knowing the GPS knows where you want to go, and yet it tells you, hey, you need to take a right here, and you decide to go straight, you are a fool. There's no way around it. Just by sheer logic, you're a total fool. I'm a fool if I do that. If I have knowledge that this will take me where I want to go, and I ignore it and go my own direction. Listen, we will stray. We won't stay oftentimes on the straight line. But when the Holy Spirit calls you to come back, to reroute you back to himself, you say, I trust you. I will turn back to the path. Otherwise, you're a fool. Or you don't actually believe that the destination is where you want to go. You want to go somewhere else. You want to do something else. And that's fine. That's your decision. Right? You have that choice to make. Where do you want to land? But I'll tell you this. Titus, the the, the Bible, the gospel, calls you to a specific destination. And so if you call yourself a Christian, if you ascribe to this truth, the destination is set for you. You cannot change it. And when you do, you're just a fool who is not living in what you say you believe. I'm not calling you out. You yourself are calling you out. If you say, this is what I believe, but I'm saying, nope, I'll do me. That's on you. That's on you. You've changed the destination. God has not. Or be rerouted. Allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the power of his word and his people to call you to goodness, righteousness, and the gospel, which leads to life and to mission. Okay. Again, that's my hope for us as we continue on. I promise we'll get to the, the, the verse here in just a moment.
as we lay the, the, the groundwork, okay, for this series. Because the reality of this book also is there are going to be some hard pills to swallow, right? Hard truths for us to understand as a church. Hard things that we're going to want to push back against. I want to push back against a lot of what is in this letter because it doesn't add up with what I believe to be true culturally. And yet I still have to submit to the word of God because that's what I've said I believe, What we need to resolve to believe as a church and as Christians, if you're here today, is that the God life is the good life. You see, that God truly knows, because he made the world, how this world should be best lived in. Like, if you build something, you know what it looks like. My son Finley, I understand the world far greater than he does, and so oftentimes, instead of having him do certain things, I'll say, no, do this, because I understand the world better than he does. God created everything, and so he certainly understands the world better than you do. And so he knows how it should be lived in for your joy and his glory. The God life is the good life. Now, you're being sold on a different story outside these walls. That the good life is all of these other things. It's doing what only you want. It's having the freedom, which is truly false freedom, to just make your own decisions about everything and not allow this godly sky fairy, right, to decide for you your life. That is not the good life. It's the fake life. It's not true. The God life is the good life, and if this is true for us, then we can take hard teaching and say, God, I don't love it. I don't even know if I agree with it at this point, but I will submit to you because I know the way you've set things up is the way things should be. Okay. Who is this man? Titus. Titus was a Gentile disciple of Paul, Gentile meaning non-Jew. He traveled with Paul. Paul gets arrested on his way to prison. He goes probably through Crete, sees Crete. These people need Jesus. Gets out of prison, returns to Crete with Titus. They start the ministry there. The church blows up. He moves on and leaves Titus to manage the church in his stead. Goes up to Ephesus and on up to Macedonia with Timothy. Leaves Timothy in Ephesus. Paul is planting churches. And he leaves Titus behind. And this is the letter he sends to him to say, this is what you need to do to make the church faithful. To, for the church to be on mission, to do what it's called to do, this is what it needs to look like. And so that's what we get in this whole letter. And hopefully that's what happens for us. The last part, as by way of introduction, what is Crete? Crete is an island just to the uh, south east of Greece to the southwest of Turkey, a good-sized island, about 150 miles by 37 miles, a good-sized island, but it was a thoroughfare and a huge place for trade, and so they were constantly exposed to new worldviews, new philosophies, and new religions. And so this is why the constant course correction we'll find in this letter from Paul to Titus is because he's saying, listen, there's all of this other stuff competing for what is true. And you need to stick to the gospel. And the same is true for us because we live in a world today where there are story after story, ideology after ideology, religion after religion, philosophy after philosophy that are pulling you for what you believe to be true. And to navigate that is difficult, but we trust God, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible to lead us back to himself every time. Amen? You guys are quiet. Amen? If you don't believe it, I guess don't say it, but... Maybe you guys are actually fine starting to listen. That'd be good. The thesis for today, okay? You can trust God, okay? So live like it. The thesis for today, you can trust God, so start living like it. 
And if you're already the all-star that is doing it already, man, great for you. You just get to sing later. But for the rest of us who find ourselves constantly seeming to just treat God as this deity who's far away and we call him at our beck and, at our beck and need, okay, let us trust God and then live like it. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul is, uh, man, he's like the stud of the New Testament, right? Writes 13 of the New Testament epistles. He's the guy that oftentimes we talk about because he had such an incredible impact upon the early church, right? Maybe aside from Jesus. Well, certainly aside from Jesus and maybe another couple people, but Paul has a tremendous influence in the early church, Some of you know the transition. He used to be called Saul, but then becomes Paul after he gets saved on the road to Damascus. Now, I'll tell you this, because oftentimes it goes, well, God changed Saul's name. This is not actually all that accurate. God didn't change Saul's name. Saul became Paul because he didn't get a name change. He got a mission change. See, Saul was the Hebrew name that he was given, and he was a minister. He was caring for the Jewish people, and then God calls him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, and so he adopts his Latin name, which is Paul. His name changed because his mission changed. So Paul understood his mission and then contextualized his ministry. So that's why we get Paul coming here to encourage Titus, giving himself two titles, both servant and apostle, doulos and apostolos, Meaning, I have authority both as a slave to God, he is my master, so he is the one that directs me and moves me, and authority as an apostle, a sent one, a delegate from God. So he is claiming his authority. This is why you should pay attention. Someone who is a slave and yet an authority given back as a delegate of God instructs us in these ways. To break this down today, we're going to look at the three P's of the gospel. And let me tell you this, there are far more P's probably to be had, but we're just going to deal with these three because they're in our text this morning. We'll look at the practice of the gospel, the promises of the gospel, and the proofs of the gospel. Verse 1 continued, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Everyone relax, just means elect. And their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Okay. Practice of the gospel. Knowledge leads to godliness, okay? Knowledge leads to godliness. Belief leads to behavior. Doctrine leads to practice. Is this true for us? Is this true for you as individuals, as Christians, as a church? In other words, do we learn something new about God, and do we actually apply it to our lives? Because if you don't, you're a fool. Or... You don't really believe it. Because if the belief, if the knowledge doesn't change anything, is it really believable by you? Is it really true? Is it something you know? Because if if the evidence doesn't support it, then I don't know if there was any knowledge to begin with. Now, when my wife was gone for uh, three weeks, she went to South Africa where she's from and visited some family. When she was away, I thought it would be a really nice surprise for her to paint the downstairs of our townhome, okay? And so I was thinking, I'll crush this thing one or two nights, no problem. It took me three weeks, okay? And so I'm taping, and I'm cutting, and I'm painting, and I should have, like, asked my interns to help, but I forgot. And so I'm just there, and so I'm literally, like, 5 a.m. every morning. I'm just rolling and stuff like that. And, uh, and I, and I turn on Hulu. And I'm giving you this intro to show you why I watch TV. 
Uh, and so I turned on Hulu to do this, and all of a sudden I was watching The Voice, which I really do like, and then on pops on The Biggest Loser, okay? And uh, I was like, all right, I'll check that out. I've never watched it before. It's on like season 17, so it must be good. And so it starts to scroll through, okay? And, and there's nothing, honestly, there's like nothing more embarrassing than watching The Biggest Loser whilst eating a Little Caesars pizza. Like, there's like, wait a minute, this isn't right, you know? And then you do it anyway. You're like, that's them, I'm fine. Um, but on like week three, right, when they're living at this ranch, they have to go talk to this doctor. And the doctor does a full physical, right? Up, up and down, gets all the blood work done, gets everything measured, all the, all the numbers, and I don't understand any of that stuff. But essentially comes back to him, and there's this one guy in this last season, they're like, hey man, if you don't stop what you're doing, if you don't change your lifestyle and change your eating habits, you're going to die in six years. Like, and so that's an average, right? But they're like, this is your this is the date you die, right? And you're counting down to that unless you change. I know that the other guy was, he's like, you're, a, you're like, you have early onset diabetes. If you don't stop, this will be full blown. You're in trouble. Okay. They have just been given this knowledge about their life. They have two choices. One, believe the knowledge and then live accordingly. In other words, don't eat the things you eat or at least at the levels you eat them and start exercising. Otherwise, this is when you die. Or two, to say, reject that knowledge and say, I'm going to do my own thing anyway. There is no middle ground. Because to accept the knowledge, hey, I could die in six years, I don't want to, but still do your own thing is foolishness. And it's what we do all the time. Jesus, I love you. You're my Savior. I know that you tell me this is what's best for my life, but forget you, I'm doing me. It's the same thing. Does knowledge lead to godliness. That is a practice of the gospel. We know more about God. We know more about his character, what he's accomplished on our behalf. We know more about the gospel, what it's done for us, how it's made us new. We know more about what he's called us to, what he's told us not to do. We know all of this, and we can either say, I believe it, and then go live it, or we can say, I don't believe it, so I'll do my own thing. You can't live in the middle. Now, Surely, there will be straying, right? Because we can't do this perfectly. I, I darn know I can't do this perfectly. My wife's been asking me to not speak in her accent since the day I met her. Seven years later, I still do it, and she still gets mad, okay? But we have the opportunity to allow for moments like this, for the Holy Spirit, for the Word of God, to course correct us. And it will course correct you today and every day for the rest of your life if you allow it. Okay. That's the goal. The goal is not perfection. You can't attain it. It's impossible. The goal is to say, this is what I believe. I'm going to do my best to live it. And when I stray, Holy Spirit, bring me back. And I'm going to go there. Or say, I'm out. I don't truly believe, Jesus, that you're better for me. I, I don't truly believe the promises that you've given me. I don't truly believe the gospel if you will continuously say, I will do my own thing. We get caught up, I get it. I've, I've bathed in sin and brokenness and terrible decision making for years. So I get it. But will we allow the Holy Spirit to course correct us as Christians and as a church for his glory, for our joy and the sake of the mission of God in the world? That's what we have to know. Will we be a more faithful church? Okay, that's the practice of the gospel. 
<clears throat> the promise of the gospel, the first one, is godliness. And I don't want to pass this over. The first promise of the gospel is godliness. Like, I think, again, we have this mentality that becoming more like God is not a good thing. It is the best thing. Being like anything but God, that's, that's what you tried for years and years and years until God made himself known to you. And it didn't work out. The good life is the God life. The God life is the good life. Okay. Godliness is a, is a gift. It is a promise. It is something we should aspire to. Will we look more like Christ? There is greater joy to be found in that than any other thing in this world. I guarantee it. Because the scripture guarantees it. It's better than anything the world offers. The second promise of the gospel in verse 2, in hope of eternal life. So not just goodness and graciousness and godliness and all that stuff here, but there is a hereafter. There is eternity. There is heaven. And we don't have time today, and I wish we did, to get into like a really robust, beautiful description and view of the new heavens and the new earth, but we just don't have it. But that is coming. We talked about it last week. There'll be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. But behold, I'm making all things new. Everything you know and see without blemish, without brokenness, without fracture, perfect. That's heaven. With God for eternity. So that is the promise of the gospel number two. The last part's here. The first proof of the gospel Continue on in verse 2. Which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Proof of the gospel, number one. God never lies. So who he is is proof of the gospel, number one. His character. God cannot lie. It goes against who his nature is. It is impossible for God to be untruthful. I think this is difficult for us to grasp because like Crete, which was known for being liars, our culture is wickedly deceptive. There was a study done back in 2002, and every social psychologist since then has said it's gotten significantly worse since then, but they haven't done as in-depth of a study since 2002. But in this study, they found that over 65% of the people in our, in the study, and, and, and that's, you know, extrapolated unto us, 65% of the people in the room in a 10-minute conversation will lie to you between three and six times. Okay, so if you sit down and have coffee and you talk for an hour, expect 18 lies to happen. I didn't do the math right. That's, that's not right. Six, like, yeah, no, that is right. 18 lies. That was good. Good job, Vince. <laughs> I trust who I am. Um, Think about that. Every hour you sit down to talk to someone, they lie to your face an average of 18 times. A lot of times it's self-protection, right? So it's kind of like, oh, I've seen that movie. I remember sitting in a class when I was back at San Diego State, and you had to go around, you had to say your, your name, and uh, of course, like, favorite movie. And remember all these people talked about how their favorite movie was, uh, oh gosh, I already forget, Garden State, which a lot of you don't even know, but it was kind of like this cool, hip movie to like back then. And then I ended up talking to the two guys next to me. They had never actually seen it. But they said it because it was the cool movie to like at the time, and they wanted to be cool. And so 18 times an hour, we live in a deceptive culture. Listen, I don't know if you follow the political discourse that's existing in our country right now, but when you fact check a debate, it's like one of the guys, like 74% of what he says is false. Even the most truthful person on the stage was like 27% false at the last debate. We cannot speak truth. And so I don't know if we can fully understand a God who never lies. 
And not just that he doesn't lie, but that every word from his mouth is perfectly true. So then when he promises things, you can take it to the bank. When he says this, you can know this will not go well with you. When he says don't do that, you shouldn't do that. When he says do this, you should do this. When he says this is who you are, live in that identity, not the one the world who lies crafts for you. So the proof of the gospel, number one, is God's character. He is perfect. He does not lie. And so we can believe every word of the Bible, every word of the gospel, every word that comes from his mouth, indeed the word that became flesh, Jesus Christ, we can put our hope fully and faithfully in him. Proof of the gospel, number two, here in verse three, as we wrap up, three, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. The proof of the gospel, number two, not just who he is, but what he's done. The ministry that he has sent forth, the preaching of his word, indeed, the death of his own self on a cross. It's not just who he is, guys. It's it's what he's done. Do you actually believe he's done what he's done? Do we believe last Sunday actually happened? I mean, honestly, Christian, I'm asking you straight up. Do you believe that the guy who was killed, that was perfect, that died for you, rose from the dead three days later and still lives to this day overseeing and ruling the world? Do you actually believe that? Because if you do, you are foolish to do things that he says not to do. And you are foolish not to do the things he says to do. Because he rose from the dead. He conquered that which you could not conquer. And he did it so that you could conquer it in him. It's the gift of the gospel. So we have proof of the gospel. We know that we can allow our beliefs to actually then lead to behavior. We know that we can have our doctrine actually lead to practice. We know that knowledge could lead to godliness because Jesus, because God, because the Spirit is true, does not lie, and has done everything in his character and by his action to prove to us this is the way to go. Vote Jesus, right? Like, as you, as you begin to navigate, man, who am I going to vote for? And you get all these people who are saying different things, whatever. God's not trying to get your vote. He just deserves it. He deserves all in. And then when the Holy Spirit calls you back in the midst of all of our string, which, again, I do want to emphasize, we all do. We all do. We say, yes, Lord, I'm coming. Okay. But it has to come back to God. It has, every time, it has to come back. What do you believe about the gospel? Because if it's true, it needs to revolutionize your life. And my life. And the life of our church. And then our nation, as 80% of our nation lives faithfully to the gospel they say they adhere to. Okay? And so here's what I'd like for us. I'm going to pray. And I'd like for us just to remember, I'm going to read this benediction, and I want this benediction to be true for us as well. And so as Paul exhorts Titus to go and now to do these things that we'll read in this letter, okay, that he would take this benediction 
true to his soul. Because I think Titus knows, and I think Paul knows, if he does not live in this benediction, if he lives in his own strength, nothing that he will say moving forward will matter at all. And so I read it to us, to Titus, to Redemption Flagstaff, to the church across our country, our true and faithful child and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. That must move us, that God is our Father, that Jesus is our Savior, that the gospel is true. Lest we walk as fools and not in the light that God has called us to, a light not just for ourselves, but a light to bring to the world. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I truly, truly feel like I'm the, the chief, the chief of this. God, I need to, I need to hear your voice this morning. I need to feel your conviction and your course correction for the mistakes that I make on the daily God, not just for the sins that I commit, but the sins that I commit by not, not doing what you've called and asked of me. And so, Lord, I pray for this a repentant spirit across our congregation and community this morning. That we would just trust you. God, we can trust you, so let us live like it. God, I don't know what you need to change or stir or convict us in. I don't know what, 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 uh, what veil needs to continue to be torn from my eyes, what, what things need to be plugged from my ears to be able to see and hear your gospel more clearly that I would apply it to everything. But Lord, would you do that for all of us? Would you meet us in this place? Would your presence bring about the fullness of joy and the conviction of the Spirit that allows us not to just stay and stray, but rather to move forward with you on mission? to be the people you've called us to be? Would the gospel be more real for us than ever? Jesus, we celebrate the reality that we have this morning, that you are truthful in your character, and you proved it because you went to the cross when we should have gone to the cross. And you rose from the dead when there's no chance we could have, that we could have new life. It is that new life that we are to walk in. So God, I just ask Holy Spirit for you to do that work in us this morning. We are woefully incapable. And God, lastly, I pray for those who are here just visiting, those that came here, God, not believing in you or what you've done, what you've accomplished, who you are, and Lord, I pray you'd meet them in a powerful and amazing way and call them into your marvelous light, that this gospel story is not reserved for any one group, any one people. It is indeed for the world. And so would you come forth in power and save and restore, redeem and call your people, not to more, but just to live in what we know to be true. To live in the gospel for your glory and for our joy. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm going to take a couple minutes just to reflect on God's word. And I just, man, I really want us, if you're a Christian here, to just ask, like, what do I believe about the gospel? What do I believe about God? What do I believe about his promises? What do I believe about the world's promises? What do I believe about the things I feel my own heart promises me? And just weigh them. Who's, who's right? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want to encourage you, just would you pray 
Like, would you just ask God to, to reveal, your, reveal himself? And that's what I did 13 years ago. It changed my life. And so let's take this time, and then Anthony will come back up and lead us in a time of response.